Father, I thank you uh, for your love and your grace and our ability uh, to be here together. And I pray that you would still our hearts upon you. There are just so many things that um, might have been consuming our minds when we came through the door and uh, so many things that can distract our minds and pull us away even as we're in this room. So we, we recognize the need, we recognize the goodness and the purity of uh, your word, your Holy Spirit, what you're doing, your work in our lives. And, and we submit to you and ask that you would um, take control of our hearts and, and keep us focused upon you and the things that you want to say to us this evening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, at the beginning of uh, Hebrews, the Lord uh, starts this uh, discussion. I'm, I'm probably going to, just for clarity's sake, I'm going to slip up and say that Paul is the author of Hebrews. We, we, we have no way of knowing that. Um, we, we discussed the um, uh, reasons why uh, the scholars argue over that point. And uh, in the end, we, we just don't know. It is my personal conviction that uh, Paul is, in fact, the author of uh, of um, Hebrews, but uh, you know, again, I just I need to be clear. Uh, if I slip up and say that, I'm not trying to make some big doctrinal position. I don't know. I don't know who the author is of Hebrews, um, but the author, the Holy Spirit, God uh, speaking to this, the the opening thrust of the thing is that in Times past, God used many various ways to communicate uh, with humanity. Um, you know, he, he spoke through angels. He uh, used the prophets. Uh, you know, we even have the occasion where Balaam the prophet was rebelling against the Lord, and uh, the Lord allowed the donkey to speak to Balaam. So we see, you know, many varied ways and unique and interesting ways uh, that the Lord spoke in time past. And the author of Hebrews then shifts gears and says, the Lord now speaks in Son. Okay, and, and it's important that we understand that. You know, if I wrote to you in letter, if I communicated to you in email, if I communicated to you, you know, by television, that is what the author of Hebrews is saying, is the Lord now speaks to the human race in Son. And there's there's a finality to that, meaning like that's the conclusion of how God communicates with the human race. It's, it's important, extremely significant that we all understand that, right? Because you, you get... Uh, you know, people like Jim Jones who come along and say, you know, I, I am the son of God. I, I am, you know, the anointed one. You have David Koresh who says, you know, I, I am the lamb of God. You know, no, you aren't. You know, and the proof's in the pudding, right? Uh, he, he, the Lord doesn't produce death in, in his ministry. Uh, so it is with 
uh, you know, the communication that comes here is now the Lord speaks in son, you know, through prophet, through angel, through various means, now in son. Keeping in mind, I just want to set all of this on track again, keeping in mind that this is, without question, written to the Jews. This is written to the Hebrew people. And all of the uh, statements and ideas, ideology, doctrine, is focused around that thought. He's communicating with Jewish people. He's correcting Jewish understanding. In particular, there is a mindset that in order to become Christian, you must first become religiously Jewish in order to become Christian. And the author is correcting that. He's, he's setting all of the nuance straight about Christianity and the doctrine of Christianity, that it doesn't in particular involve returning to the law. It doesn't involve returning to the sacrifices. It doesn't involve, you know, Saturday, Sabbath worship. All of these things that even today there are people that get snared uh, in those different ways of thinking. We had read the first four verses of chapter 2 that say, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. And now I just I know we've covered this last week when we were together, but I, I, I want to begin there again to set that idea right. Drifting occurs silently. Drifting occurs subtly. Drifting occurs gradually. Any of us that have gone fishing and simply killed the motor and let it drift. And you just cast and sort of slow troll and reel in. You know, you do that for hours, and you turn around and think, oh, my goodness, I didn't realize I was, you know, half mile off course here because you've just drifted. I give an example uh, working for a yacht company when I first moved down here doing some electrical work and different things with them, uh, one of the guys doing a job had um, gone, we, we had this huge multi-million dollar yacht moored out uh, on, on a mooring, and um, he needed to do some work on that. So he took a tender out and got on board the yacht and, and brought it back to the dock because he needed to go in the shop and back onto the yacht, back and forth like this a number of times, and thinking it was going to be just a short period of time, he didn't tie off to the dock. And, you know, it, nothing tragic happened, but, you know, he's on the boat doing the work, thankfully, because he could have been in the shop and the boat could have drifted away, okay? So he's on the boat doing the work and comes up to the deck thinking he's just going to go you know, onto the dock and grab a few tools and go back. And he's, you know, like 20 feet away from the dock. Just the slightest movement, the drift. 
you know, and he's got to fire the boat back up and bring the thing full around again and bring it up. And, you know, for sure, he tied off that time. You know, the, the drift, the, you know, the way that we fall away, the distance. Unfortunately, some of us can attest to doing that. You know, not paying careful heed, not giving attention to our relationship to Christ, not firmly affixing ourselves to the Lord and you turn around and you haven't even noticed. Somebody else might point it out to you. Oh, goodness. <laughs> this is part of your life now? You know, you, you have drifted so far that you now behave this way? And, and, you know, sometimes we get all defensive and argumentative about who are you to talk, you know, and really it's out of embarrassment because we recognize how far we've drifted. We didn't up until it was brought to our attention. But the inattentiveness, right? Go back to what Jesus is saying. Classic chapter, John chapter 15, about abiding in Christ. You have to abide in him. That, that isn't done casually. You know, affixed to, planted in, you know, interwoven around. You know, you guys that have studied with me for years no i'm probably i'm going to bring up where it says that uh, you know those that wait upon the lord will mount up on wings of eagles you know run and not be weary walk and not be faint and, and often christians will act like why why am i you know i i've been reading my devotions i've been doing the thing but but i've grown cold and i don't really have a desire for this and i don't really have a fire anymore well the the term wait means to, in the original language of the Hebrew, means to be interwoven with. There's nothing casual, right? You don't, it's not like waiting for the bus to stop by. <laughs> I waited on the Lord. I've, I've been sitting right here waiting for the Lord to show up. It isn't even the idea of waiting the tables. Of, I, I've been bringing Jesus stuff. It's to be completely knitted together. That if you were to try and pull, and separate it would be impossible uh, that, that you know it's bound and remember you know, the little kid you, those old finger cuffs you put your right try to pull those apart i mean it's it's that idea of bound into place that's you're not going to drift away if, if you are abiding attached to interwoven with christ and this is the encouragement that we're getting here. Give the more earnest heed to the things that you've heard, lest you drift away. And 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 this is to, again to the Jews, right? Why would they drift? Because they're going to drift back into their religious practices. They're, they're going to drift back into going to temple. They're going to you know drift back into well, you know, none of these Jews want to socialize with me anymore. You know, I've declared myself a Christian. I've stopped offering sacrifices. So they say that that's me falling into sin. You know, they don't respect the once and for all offering that Jesus Christ did at the cross. And so I, I've been shunned. And so I'll just go to temple with them a few times. I won't even offer sacrifice. I'll just, I'll just go to temple with them. And you drift into, listen, modern application for all of us Gentiles, right, drift into religion. Rather than having a relationship with Jesus Christ where you are deeply seated into him, where you are bound into him in relationship, uh, well, it's Wednesday, I ought to go to church, 
and you sit and you just listen and sort of punch your ticket and out the door. It's easy to do. It's very easy to just simply become religious in the process. Verse 2, for if the word spoken to angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape? If we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. You know, the angels were in the presence of the Lord and they rebelled against the Lord, fell away from the Lord and they were cast out of his presence. Look, if angels can be cast out of his presence, how how much more could we? If we neglect so great a salvation, look look what happened to them. I mean, right? I mean, if if anybody had a sure attachment to Christ, it, it had to have been those angels who were in his presence, ministers, and yet following after Satan and falling away. The Lord is saying, you know, they have received their reward. They are under under that judgment. You know, the transgression, disobedient, receive a just reward. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? I I, um, I want to clarify again. I don't preach that you can lose your salvation. Okay. Um, you know, that's it's a deeper doctrine. And, and if you're not uh, all that concerned about it, then neither am I. But, you know, there are those that preach... I think an imbalance on both ends. Eternal security to any right, eternal security is real. Predestination is real. Scripture teaches both of those things. But predestination and eternal security are taught to the degree that they are incorrect, where some people are like, hey, I prayed a prayer when I was a kid in Sunday school and I'm a Christian and I'm saying, yeah, but you're a full on criminal and you, you know, don't. Walk with Christ at all, man. I mean, and they're like, yeah, but I prayed the prayer. You know, like I had my ticket punched. You know, that is not what eternal security is talking about at all. Then you got the other end of the spectrum that thinks like, well, man, you know, I was a Christian right up till about 1030 this morning, you know, and I got cut off in traffic and I told the guy off and, you know, we got a fist fight. And so now I lost my salvation. You probably shouldn't have gotten in a fist fight. You, you know, you, you shouldn't have done many of the things you did. But, you know, that's why we are reliant upon the grace of God. You know, there's a balance in this. And the idea of the neglect that's being spoken of here, again, this is written to Jews who, you know, aren't any longer relying upon the grace of God and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ at the cross, but begin to go back and perform animal sacrifices so that their sins might be covered. And the author of Hebrews is saying, hey, you could drift away to the point where you're now neglecting the salvation that you used to have, that you used to cling to, that you used to profess. You know, then you got to get into what John asks when he speaks of the false prophets, where he says, you know, they went out from us because they never were of us. Had they been of us, they never would have departed from us. 
Right? So it's not a matter of, in that case, losing the salvation. You're proving that you never were saved. If you're going to drift away from the Lord and no longer rely upon Jesus Christ's finished work at the cross, then you've got to ask, were you ever saved? Were you ever completely committed? Yeah, oh, I am. I'm a prodigal. <laughs> I always say, I've literally been told that to my face. You're, oh, so you're living in sin because you're a prodigal son. Yeah, that's me. And I said, well, I think you're self-deceived and I think you're unsaved. And they're all offended. But you say you're prodigal. So here's the difference. The prodigal comes home. So you ready to go home? Well, no. And Okay, so I think you're self-deceived. If you're truly prodigal, then you're going to be brokenhearted over the condition you are. You're going to recognize that you can go home and experience the welcoming of your Heavenly Father as He calls you into celebration and service simultaneously. So, uh, to stay the point here, you understand that if the angels received their just reward, punishment, then so much more we, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. The, the, the summary that the work that's being done in your life is an evidence of the Lord's presence in your life. Uh, to what degree is that? Well, to whatever degree it is. I mean, were you a complete heathen before who thumbed your nose at God? who wanted nothing to do, who, you know, never would have darkened the doorstep of a church, let alone now you serve him? I mean, maybe there's a long ways to go, but let's look at where you started. The Lord has performed miracles in your life and brought you to this place. Verse 5, for he who, for he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place, it's Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6, but what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You've made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Um just want to correct that idea again, right? We've heard it a couple times now. You know, to which of the angels did God ever say? To which of the angels did God ever perform this work? Here, you know, th this statement about, you know, uh, he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. The Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, both insist that Jesus is an angel. Yeah, that he's a created being. It's totally false. We, we looked at uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 3, who being speaking of Jesus, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, speaking of God. Jesus is the express image of his person. I gave the illustration of uh, those toys that have all the pins on them, and you press your hand into it and... You can see the impression of your hand. And then you put your face in it. You can see the impression of your face on the other side. That's exactly what is being said here. That Jesus was the earthly impression of God. 
God took creation, created being, and pressed himself into it and, and gave us Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, you have Philip asking Jesus, show us the Father and that will be sufficient for us. And Jesus says, have you been with me so long that you do not recognize who I am? He who has seen me has seen the Father. God impressed himself upon creation and expressed Jesus as God the Son. He's not an angel. You know, he, he's not going to put this creation and the coming creation, the new heaven and the new earth, under the authority of an angel. The, the Jewish people were elevating Jesus to some kind of deified platform that was not God. He was the greatest prophet. He was a great teacher. He was an angelic being. <laughs> the author of Hebrews is saying, nope, not at all. Jesus was God in the flesh, and he is going to bear all authority over creation. This creation here and now, what we see transpiring right now on planet Earth is a confirmation that Jesus Christ is going to complete all the things we're reading in the book of Revelation, and he is going to conquer the world and set his throne up upon planet earth and he is going to rule this earth physically as the god who created it for a thousand years and when the thousand years is ended he will conquer and destroy satan and all of his followers and cast him into hell and destroy the earth and create a new heaven and a new earth where everyone who's going to be with him in eternity will be with him at that point all of creation is under the authority of Jesus Christ. Made him a little lower than the angels. Well, why, why would he do that? Why not make him an angel? Why, why, why not cause him to be some elevated being, something of majesty? Because he needed to suffer the process of obedience more than anything else. We're going to hear that in the book of Hebrews, right? He's going to be subjected, Jesus was subjected to the same temptation you and I have. It is the exact same temptation. The Garden of Gethsemane is the perfect summary of it, which is Jesus saying, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, and here's the punchline, not my will be done, but your will be done. That's your struggle every single day, all day. Wake up in the morning, and the issue is, not my will today, but your will. And Jesus had that same struggle. Right? Ours is, we want to embrace sin. We have a desire for things that are sinful. And the resistance is, no, I'm not going to embrace that. I'm going to push that away. Jesus was being asked to embrace sin. He didn't want to. And his will had to be subjected to God and take on my sin and your sin in order to accomplish salvation. The scripture literally says that Jesus, it's weird to say, if I said it, it would be blasphemous. But the scripture literally says Jesus learned obedience. 
strange to think about that. Very strange to think, right? He's God in the flesh. Does he know everything? Yes. But he had to learn something. Well, that's wrong. That can't be. He's God. He had to, he had to experientially learn obedience. He had to go to the cross, right? If you could just sort of make somebody fly apart molecularly, <laughs> all of their atoms just scatter into the wind, you know, and they're about to kill you for nothing that you've done wrong. Wouldn't the temptation be there to just, right, bowl them over in the Garden of Gethsemane? Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. Wham. They all hit the ground. Proving you're not here overpowering me. I'm here submitting to this. Right? When we read in John, it says, And the darkness did not overcome him. It says did not comprehend. But it's most accurately translated, did not overcome him. Right? The bright light of Jesus spiritually was not conquered by Rome, conquered by our collective sin. It was not conquered by the power of Satan. Jesus Christ bowed his knee to death. And he gave into it and allowed it to come to himself so that he could rule over creation. So he was the rightful master of it. He is no angel. He is God in the flesh. That last statement in verse 8, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. Continuing, it says, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. They are presently under his authority. You just don't see it yet. Right? You you would want to have him choke the stuffing out of certain people. You read the headlines and think, oh, Lord, please. How could that have happened? There's a coming day where the people who have done those things will have to stand in front of him and give account. Imagine the shock and horror of people who have existed in such arrogance and flagrant disregard. In them he put all things in subjection under him, nothing that is not put under him, but now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone, the finality of all things, the finishing. You know, that was his last statement on the cross, right? To tell us die. It is finished. You've got to ask what? What is finished? All things, right? Form creation, put man in the garden, and, and Adam and Eve just train wrecked the whole program. Well, how are we going to redeem humanity out of this mess sin and death and all the garbage that's associated with it come all the way to the cross and jesus says it's finished through his death the completion of all of those things for verse 10 it was fitting for him for whom all things and by whom all by whom all things are made 
and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Right? If Jesus Christ, if God himself had not suffered the way he did, and now you stand in front of him to be judged, and he says, the one, you know, if you only sinned once, the one single sin you have committed condemns you to hell. If he has not suffered the same process you have suffered, then he has no right to say to you, I condemn you. It's the fact that he suffered, that he took the brunt of sin, right? Sin produces death. He took death and left the invitation of, if you want my sin to count as your punishment, then just accept it. Just cash the check. I'll cover all your debts. If you refuse it, then you're going to have to stand in front of him and experience the punishment for all the things you've done wrong. It is through the obedience in death that he tasted death for everyone. You know, it's fitting for him for whom all things and by whom all things are made in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Not ashamed to call them brethren. So interesting. The way that humanity shrinks away from God. You know, make bold proclamations about being a follower of Jesus Christ, like Peter then under the heat of the moment in confrontation. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, no. Either through confessed statement or through behavior. Demonstrate to the witnesses, I am not following Jesus Christ. Because it's not always spoken words, right? I mean, there are certain things Christians would never do. But we reach out and we put our hand to them, right? If, if we're actively engaged in sin, whoever's witnessing that has to make the assumption that can't be a follower of Jesus Christ right there. Why? Well, look at them. They're actively engaged in that sin right there. Our behavior is a profession of denial. The scripture states that very clearly. Certainly the spoken profession, right, of I don't know Jesus, I'm not a Christian, I don't go to church, I'm none of that. That is an even more bold declaration like Peter did. But it has the same effect in the process. We, through word or behavior, deny our attachment to Jesus Christ. How weird is that? You know, when you take the concept of here is the God of all creation, saying, testify that you belong to me, and we shrink away from that. The opposite of, there's the filthy, rotten sinner, the horrid human being. And the God of all creation says, that one belongs to me. He doesn't hesitate to say, and that one, and that one, and that one. Look, if he'll embrace us, 
Should we not embrace him? This is literally the question that's being posed here. How, how can we shrink away from him? You know, especially to the Jews, right? Who, why, why aren't you sacrificing? You know, they're at the local deli just stuffing a BLT into their mouth and some Jew walks by and goes, hey, is that bacon? <laughs> you know? And rather than say, yeah, no big deal, I'm a Christian now. You know, they're spitting it out on the ground and, no, no, <laughs> I had, there's bacon in this, you know. They, they, they were, that was their temptation. To this day, Jews in Jerusalem, devout followers, confess to Christian tourists, I'm secretly a follower of Jesus Christ. How about publicly be a follower of Jesus Christ? How about boldly stand up? You know, I, I really still enjoy that song DC Talk did in the early 90s, uh, Jesus Freak. You know that, that was an insultive name that was assigned to the Jesus movement of the 70s. If you were a follower of Jesus, then you were a Jesus Freak. The term Christian was a full-on mockery of Christians. The, the people of Antioch first ascribed that to the followers of Jesus Christ. Christianity was referred to as the way, simply the way, meaning the way of Jesus Christ. So, oh, are you a member of the way? Are you a follower of the way? Are you of the way, they would ask. The, the unbelievers in Antioch were offended by Christians and began to refer to them as Christians, meaning little Christ. And they, they you know, wag their head and say it very mockingly. Oh, here comes the little Christ. Oh, here comes the little Jesus. Stop telling that joke. Jesus is here. That's what they meant. Small, small Christ, Christian, a miniaturized representation of Jesus. Wow, that's quite a compliment for us. Jesus freak. Yes, I am. Well, why not be associated with him? You know, the, the idea that someone so much more elevated than us has embraced us without any hesitation. He sanctified those who are being sanctified uh, are all of one for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, literally brothers or sisters, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. Uh, I know that that is you know, our praise, but it's remarkable that here it's also his praise. He sings praise of the fact that we belong to him. Right? Have you got kids? You inevitably find yourself bragging about them, don't you? You start out with you would not believe what they did the other day. And before it's done, you just you, you know, you can just see like you're you're glazing over the person you're talking to. You love your kids. You talk about them. The Lord loves us. You know, I I know it was Joe Foch, I first heard say it's 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 remarkable 
that he loves us, but it's astonishing that he likes us. You know, he's the God of love, so of course he loves you. He has to. He is the God of love. The fact that he likes you, you know, he's in the crowd of all of his friends, high elevated spiritual beings, sees you across the room and says, well, you know, shouts out, Colleen, you know, invites you over into his acceptance of you. That's amazing that he embraces us that way. It should put a check in our heart about shrinking away from him. It should never be that our behavior is, you know, someone's bad-mouthing Christianity and, and what? We just act like, I'm not a Christian. It should be that we boldly stand. If he'll boldly stand for us, we should reflect that same thing. And this is what the author of Hebrews is saying. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. He's quoting Second uh, Samuel and then uh, Isaiah. But what a remarkable thing that, that Jesus Christ, God of all creation, claims us. You know, we're like that terrible relative at the, you know, cookout family reunion who everybody's just like oh they showed up and, and you know loud and obnoxious and sinful just as disgusting as the day is long and jesus goes hey that one's mine right over there how blessed that he would ever embrace us so much more again the encouragement that we embrace him the the, the jews wanted to shrink away from being identified as a Christian. Literally, you know, I've described before, we have those two incredibly powerful, incredibly wealthy men described in the scripture of Joseph of Arimathea and then Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus, uh, Flavius Josephus, I believe it was Nicodemus, um, uh, gives account that uh, when when his daughter was married, there had never been a more glorious celebration in all of Jerusalem's history. It was he was that wealthy that he caused the entire city to experience the joy and the beauty and the celebration of his daughter's wedding. Three years after declaring himself after Jesus' death and declaring himself a follower of Jesus Christ, he was homeless and penniless, suffering for the cause. If you announced you were a follower of Jesus Christ, the, your business would be labeled. They would, they, would, they would paint graffiti on the front of your business, and you would be shunned. You would not be allowed into the synagogues. You would not be allowed to any of the Jewish festivals. You definitely weren't going to come into the temple. No one would come to your business anymore. No one would do business with you anymore. No one would lend to you anymore. Your life would end right there in the moment. The pressure to not identify yourself as a Christian was immense. And here, the author of Hebrews is saying, look, you are a loathsome, criminal, sinning dirtbag, and Jesus Christ identifies himself with you. You need to make sure that your heart always identifies yourself with Jesus Christ. 
don't shrink away from that. It's, it's not some condemning thing. It's an encouragement in the process in the way that he claims us. Verse 14, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. The devil doesn't wield death. Uh, the way that, you know, maybe that makes you think. It's the idea that the sinfulness and the temptations that he draws us into so often, you know, produce destructive things in our heart, in our mind, and in our behavior. And they can literally produce death, those ill-fated moments where you make the wrong decision and the temptation leads you into destruction. It's a horrible horrible consideration. Jesus Christ overpowered him and released those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And that's that's all of us. It's amazing how much death keeps people ensnared without even realizing they don't dare do certain things. I'm not talking about, you know, you need to become a bungee jumping, you know, thrill-seeking freak of some kind. But when you start talking, I I mean, I have frequently uh, talked to people about going to Israel. And they're like, oh my goodness, that is such a dangerous place. I would never go there. You get the impression from the way the media handles certain scenarios and know all that goes on you know right thousands of rockets being fired into israel it is way more dangerous to be downtown los angeles or new york city after 9 p.m right kensington ave (laughs) after 9 p.m yeah i mean you're you're rolling the dice in certain places israel i mean just you know, little girls, little girls clustered together in the park with their backpacks and their notebooks and an M16 slung over their shoulder. You know, they're in the military and they're there to protect you, let alone the police officers that are stationed. Like, you can look, there's a police officer, you know, two of them strapped, fully automatic weapons. They're there to protect you everywhere you go. Israel's extraordinarily safe. Jerusalem is in particularly incredibly safe compared to a lot of other places in the world. Uh, Yet out of fear, a lot of Christians, uh, I would never go to Israel. Just the way that it's presented. Oh, it's the Middle East and terrorism and you got the Muslims there with the Jews. And it's just, you know, most of the people that helped us that were tour guides and taxi drivers were Arabs, and they were born-again Christians. And I'm not talking about, like, fake ones who were just trying to impress. I'm talking real-deal born-again Christians. Love Jesus. You know, are living where they are because of their love of Jesus Christ. Fear. Fear of death. Look, honestly, again, let's, let's remind ourselves the absolute worst thing that could ever happen to us is the absolute best thing that could ever happen to us. Leave this world, enter the presence of God. All of your troubles over. 
Oh, my bills and my credit cards. Right, somebody else's problem now, you know. See you later. <laughs> you know, live here as long as you can. Share Jesus Christ. Take care of your credit card and your debt, things of that nature. But, you know, what is the worry we get so hung up on? If you're worried about it, then I have to ask you, have you set the surety in your mind that when you step out of this life, you're going to be in the presence of God? Because you haven't done that and you live in fear, then you're missing the freedom that Jesus Christ is going to give you. Like I said, this doesn't make it that you're going to drive 100 miles an hour everywhere you go and just weave in and out of traffic. Right? You know, you, you settle this in your heart and go to, you know, down to friend and friend tomorrow and buy a motorcycle. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying it's going to create in you a recklessness. But it, it can create an assurance of, yeah, hey, there is nothing to worry about, isn't there? I, I have the assurance of Jesus Christ. It released those who, through fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Frees us from it. We're not going to experience death as those who have rejected him. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels. But he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Now, just for clarity's sake, he's talking to the Jews, as we've mentioned endlessly in this study. But, uh, you know, Paul gives us that definition of uh, the seed of Abraham is the one who has surrendered his life to God in his heart. You are Israeli. You are a child of Abraham, if you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. You belong to him. So this has application to us, is what I'm trying to say. Verse 17, therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be merciful and faith, might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pre pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of of the people had to make that payment for the sins of the people for in that he himself has suffered being tempted he is able to aid those who are tempted and we have the two the temptation went on continuously and we'll just close with this idea we have the two distinct temptations that took place right uh, you have the temptation in the wilderness after 40 days of praying and fasting. And then you also have the temptation in the garden of Gethsemane that we've already talked about in tonight's study, where he, he would have rathered to not embrace sin and face the cross. But he passed the test on both points. Um, you think about how hungry... Uh, I, I have an acquaintance who fasted for 40 days. Uh, he he um, he lost 35 pounds in 40 days. Uh, he did it under a doctor's guidance. Uh, he did have to uh, do fluid intake and uh, take care of uh, certain nutritional balances um, in the process, but no solid food uh, for 30 days, uh, prayer and fasting, as he embarked upon starting a hugely successful ministry and has been doing it for decades now. But when he began uh, that whole process, um, 
there, you know, wave upon wave of hunger. You get to 40 days and your your body goes through a process where uh, it, it kicks on the hunger to a degree that you've never experienced before in your life because your body knows, okay, we've reached the place where you're killing us and we're going to start digesting the internal organs of your body, literally. We're going to start with your vital organs, uh, the proteins contained inside your kidneys and your liver and your heart are going to go first. So if you don't put some food in here right now, um, you know, it's going to be desperate. 40 days prayer and fasting, and then the devil comes to him, and what's that first thing, right? You just turn these rocks into bread. And in Jesus, when he feeds the 5,000, is capable of multiplying already existing food, but according to John chapter 1, he created all things. So Genesis chapter 1, when God created the universe, there was nothing. It isn't as science tries to say that everything was densely compacted down into a very small area and it exploded outward into all that we are experiencing today, which I will avoid the temptation to go into that whole discussion. Uh, but there was nothing. There was nothing. And he created, so, so he could change nothing into food. Again, a temptation that we've faced in different ways where, you know, you're going to cut the corners in order to get what you want. You're going to lie, cheat, steal, break the law in order to satisfy your current need. Or are you going to trust God and let him be your provision? It's a serious challenge. You know, uh, when I first surrendered my life to Christ, I walked out of just... Oh, such I got too many witnesses here that know what I was. And um, those first, especially that first year, it was very tempting to just reach back into that own old world in order to make provision for myself and my wife and my newborn daughter. And the Lord just kept saying, if you'll trust me, I'll take care of you. Even when things got absolutely horrible, he was there and took care of me. We, we have to learn this process. What Jesus is saying, what's being said to these Hebrew people, right? They're being very tempted. Just, just denounce Jesus Christ and go back to temple. You know? Just get a lamb <laughs> and go sacrifice it. Just show the Jews that are around you that you're, you are Jewish. You'll have your business back. You'll be able to survive. And they stuck it out and suffered with Jesus Christ. And that's the encouragement. That's, there, there are certain paths that look easier, right? Just uh, your spouse is driving you absolutely berserk, and you could just go get a bottle and shut them off. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Just blag out the nagging. And you've instead got to go get on your face before the Lord and hear what that high priest is going to give you for wisdom, and then go back to that situation and apply it. 
This is the encouragement that we're being given. And you, you have to layer on this lesson the depth of what these Jews are going through. Think, think about that, right? I mean, you could just still believe in your heart. Like, I'm, I'm still a Christian, but I did, I'm just, you know what, tomorrow morning I'm going to temple. I'm just going to go worship with those guys. I just I got to lift this pressure off myself. You know, after all, I'm a Jew. I live in Jerusalem, and I'm just being persecuted for this Christianity. I'll just keep Christianity in my heart, but I'll go participate in these other religious things in order to. Do you see the parallel in your own life, in the way of I'll just I'll just I'll just shirk by. I'll just cut the corner right here. You know, I, they keep inviting me to go to the bar. And I keep saying no and making up excuses. I haven't just told them outright, I can't. I'm a Christian. I'm not going to do that anymore. You got to stand up and own your high priest. You got to let him carry you through the challenges. You got you to gotta let him be known to the people who are around you. We can't just, you know, hide in our faith. Right? That, that whole thing of people saying, I'm a silent witness. Right? The word witness is actually the word martyr. One who is killed for their faith. We say witness today. Everywhere you read in the scripture, the witness, the witness, the witness, it's the martyr, the martyr, the martyr. One who sacrificed their life for Christ. You don't get to be a silent martyr. Right? Why are they killing this person? They're a follower of Jesus Christ. Oh, okay. Right? Even, even the sense of witness uh, where within martyr of testifying is the idea of a court case. Right? Someone's been accused of a crime. You've now been called as a witness. It is the term martyr, but it also bears the idea of testifying. You don't get to show up when your friend's about to be executed and say, I, I would prefer to be a silent witness. If you know the truth about those circumstances, you need to testify of them. That's what Jesus Christ has called us to be. If you're saying, I don't know how to do that, I can't do that, what you're describing to me is bigger than I've ever been. Right? When Jesus ascends into heaven, he tells the apostles, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until you have been given dynamite power from heaven. The word is dudamis. The, the deutimus is where we get the word dynamite. Explosive. You stay until Jerusalem. You stay in Jerusalem until you have received explosive power to be my witnesses. Then the Holy Spirit falls on Peter, Acts chapter 2, and they testify to everyone in the streets, and thousands of people are converted to Christianity and then take it all over the world explosive power to testify on behalf of Jesus Christ. Uh, I don't have that power. That's the power you need. You need the Holy Spirit to give you the strength, the explosive power to blurt it out in front of the people that need to hear it. 
to the ones that you've been shrinking away from and not sharing with. You need to open your mouth. You need to speak for Jesus Christ and be his witness. The same as he testifies of us. That one belongs to me. That one belongs to me. Right? We want him to say that. Even if now you'd like to just keep it all sort of quiet, private. This is my deal. Just I don't need to rock anybody's boat. You're going to stand in front of a judgment seat one day. Right? All roads do lead to God. They all do. The issue is where do they lead after that? In his presence for eternity or separated from him in eternity? And when you're standing there and you realize that's what's right in front of me. Eternity in his presence or eternity separated from his presence? You want him from that judgment throne to say that one belongs to me. If we want that now, then the appropriate behavior is that we would say of Jesus now, that one belongs to me. I belong to him. He belongs to me. I am a child of God. I am a Christian. I am a believer. This is the testimony. This is what the author of Hebrews is encouraging us with. So we'll pick up at chapter 3 next week. Let's try it out. Let's stand and we'll pray. I say that because we've got this camera, and I don't know if my head's going to be completely out of the shot as I stand up. And it is. Look at that. I can fix that by pressing this button. There. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your love and your grace, and I pray, Lord, that you would help us to submit to you, your authority, your lordship. You are so good to us. So good to us. Lord, and we have to admit that at least at times we have struggled like Peter to own our relationship with you. Help us to be men and women that submit to the power of your Holy Spirit and that we would testify of being a believer in Jesus Christ, that we would share with the world the hope that you had created in us. Accomplish your will, accomplish your work in us and through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.